One of my favorite television shows of all time, and full admission, I, I have a kind of eclectic uh, television taste, but one of my favorite shows is Breaking Bad. Yes, your pastor uh, watched and really enjoyed Breaking Bad. Also like Better Call Saul. It's a, if you haven't watched it, you should. It's, it's good. Anyway, the show's written by a guy named Vince Gilligan, stars Brian Cranston and Aaron Paul. Not only is the narrative of Breaking Bad fascinating. The cinematography, absolutely beautiful. But the way the story was told, the way it was written, was truly masterful. Now there are all kinds of things that I could, I could point out about Breaking Bad. This is not a Bible study about Breaking Bad. My point of bringing up the show is that there was one specific technique that Gilligan used throughout the show to speed up the narrative. Over the course of the five seasons, the time compression montage became a signature of Breaking Bad. It occurred typically at either the beginning or end of an episode, sometimes at the beginning or end of a season. For those unfamiliar with this particular technique, time compression montage is used to quickly show a specific time sequence, either in the life of a singular character or group of characters, that covers a period of, of a few weeks, even as much as a few months. What this technique allows is a storyteller to fill in certain plot gaps in order to advance a story without dedicating a whole lot of time, unnecessary time. For example, there's a point in Breaking Bad where the main characters, Walter White and Jesse Pinkman, they begin cooking meth in homes that have been contracted out for extermination services. So this is kind of their deal. They're cooking meth while it's supposed to be being exterminated. Now, what Gilligan does is he doesn't show like the full set of, of their daily lives happening scene by scene. But instead of quickly skipping over what that season of their lives might have looked like, what Gilligan does is he shows a very quick, truncated version of those months he speeds up, he splices together footage of Walter and Jesse going about their daily routine in order to demonstrate how after that sequence, where their lives are by the time the meat of the plot comes back. So it's a technique that's used to speed up a story without wasting a lot of time, but to get you set up where you need to be when you get back to meat. So you follow what I'm saying. Now, the reason I bring this up is that I can fully admit that we haven't exactly been working our way through the life of Abraham at a breakneck speed. Uh, we've been taking our time. And we've been taking our time mainly because the subject matter that we've been looking at has been necessary to the larger story that Moses has been telling. Stuff that we shouldn't skip or fast forward through. However, aside from Genesis 1 through 19, a story we looked at last Sunday, the truth is, Genesis, the last few verses of Genesis 21, the last few verses of Genesis 22, all of chapters 23 and 24, Moses kind of used a similar technique. He uses what you can imagine to be a time compression montage to move the story along. As such, this morning, instead of unnecessarily slowing down, diving deep into a text that we really shouldn't, largely because the sections we'll be looking at are narrative-driven, the purpose to transition us to new material, we're going to work our way through a section of Scripture as fast as I believe Moses wants us 
to work through the section. Most of the time on Sundays, we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We're going to do that. We're going to skip a section we looked at last Sunday. But the whole point of this passage is to move on the narrative, to kind of transition us, honestly, from Abraham to Isaac. And I think you'll see how this, how this works. Full disclosure, we're going to do a lot of reading this morning, not as much commentating, but I still think that there's some really cool nuggets that you'll be able to take away. Chapter 21, let's look at verse 22. We're told it came to pass, and this is after Hagar and Ishmael have been sent away. At that time, Abimelech and Fithcol, commander of his army, spoke to Abraham saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me, with my offspring, my posterity, that according to the kindness that I have done to you, you will do to me and to the land in which you have dwelt. And Abraham said, I will swear. So Abraham rebuked Abimelech because of a well of water which Abimelech's servants had seized. That word seized means that they violently took it away. They seized it by force. And Abimelech said, I have no idea what you're talking about. You did not tell me. I've not heard of it till today. So Abraham, he took sheep, he took oxen, he gave them to Abimelech. The two of them made a covenant. This is a, a Middle Eastern way of making an agreement, very similar to the covenant that God made with Abraham back in Genesis 15. So if you want to know the procedure of this covenant, you can go back and read it for yourself. Additionally, after the covenant, Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. So Abimelech asked Abraham, what's the meaning of these seven ewe lambs which you have set by themselves? And he said, you'll take these seven lambs from my hand that they may be witness that I dug this well. Therefore, Abraham called the name, called the place, Beersheba, because the two of them swore an oath there. Uh, Beersheba, the word in the Hebrew, it literally means well of the seven oaths. And so that's a fitting name for a well in which there was an oath. Thus, they made a covenant at Beersheba. So Abimelech rose with Fithcol, commander of his army. They returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a teramis tree in Beersheba. We have no idea what that tree is. Uh, more than likely, the word simply means that Abraham planted a grove of trees to signify that he owned the well. He, there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God, which is cool. It's a, it's a new name introduced for God that speaks of his continuous, eternal existence. Abraham sta stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. Now, before we move forward, just a couple things first. Uh, if you're a cynic, a skeptic, you might look at the last verse there and be like, ha, ha, there's something wrong with that, right? Because it says Philistines, that he dwelt in the land of the Philistines. And Zach, historically, we know that at this time, there were no Philistines living in the area. That's true. Abimelech, the king of Gerar, this area, they would become the Philistines. The easy answer to the skeptical question is that by the time Moses writes this, there are Philistines living in this land. So what Moses is doing is he's making a geographic reference, not back some 600 years ago, of which the people would not have context for, but instead saying, yeah, you know the land of the Philistines? Present day, Philistines, that's where Abraham spent many days. And he spent quite a period of time. Now for context, this exchange between Abraham and Abimelech that we just read, it occurred sometime following the dismissal of Hagar and Ishmael, from Abraham's tents, that's the first half of chapter 21. 
And then the story of Abraham offering Isaac that we looked at last Sunday, Genesis 22. We have no idea the exact time frame. Could have been as early as five years following the dismissal of Hagar and Ishmael. Could have been as long as 25 years. We don't know how much time transpires when Abimelech and the commander of his army come to Abraham to enter this particular truce, this treaty. Now, it's with this in mind that I believe that there are two reasons that this story is included by Moses into the Genesis record. For full disclosure, this is kind of how I think. Anytime I approach a text, I always want to place it in the macro perspective. Like, why is this even here? Like, why did Moses find this story to be so important to spend time, like they're using scrolls, limited space to write. So why include this particular story? You'll find if you go and you kind of Google and you look at different commentaries that no one addresses that question. Like even my favorite Bible commentator, David Guzik, like this passage skips right over it to the point I felt inclined to send him a text message saying, why did you skip over this text? Why is this in, in the Bible? Well, we had a dialogue. And I said, you know, I wouldn't have had to waste your time if you had just included this in your commentary. And he said, version two. I said, truce. So why is this text in the Bible? I think there's two reasons. First, in a macro sense, by explaining here the origins of Beersheba. You notice Beersheba is mentioned multiple times, kind of provides the origins of Beersheba. And doing this, explaining that Beersheba came to be because of this treaty between Abraham and Abimelech, what Moses is doing, which would be helpful for a group of people coming from Egypt to a land of promise, which is when Moses is compiling and writing all of this, he's letting the children of Israel know what the southern border was to the land of promise. And Beersheba is the southern border. As a matter of fact, in Genesis 14, Moses has already established when Abraham went and pursued the armies of Chedlamar to the north, he said he pursued them as far as Dan. So Moses has already established the northern border of the promised land, not all the way up to Damascus, but to Dan, and now he's establishing the southern border. So some, some bookends. You don't need to establish the western border, that's the Mediterranean Sea, and then you've got the Jordan River Valley, which is a great uh, marker to the east. And so what Moses is doing is he's saying, hey, this Beersheba, this part in the south, it's ours by treaty. Like Moses entered, uh, Abraham entered into an agreement with the king that this is his well, this is his turf, this is his area. As a matter of fact, if you, if you look throughout scripture, the Old Testament, you will find the land of promise bookmarked over and over and over again, as being from Dan to Beersheba. So I think that's, in a macro sense, the first reason we have this particular story. Secondly, though, in a more micro sense, I'm convinced that Moses includes this story to illustrate the fact that God can redeem even a tarnished reputation. Like, don't forget, in Abraham's first interactions with this man Abimelech, he hadn't exactly been a pillar, an example, a great witness. Abraham comes into the area, and remember what he does? He lies about Sarah being his wife, so Abimelech takes her. God strikes Abimelech and his family with a plague as a result. It's not until God comes to Abimelech, not even Abraham, in a dream saying, yo, that woman, it's his wife. You should leave her alone. This is a prophet, on and on and on, that Abimelech comes and is like, yo, Abe, what's up, man? And Abe's like, it's not my fault. Totally shifts blame. He never takes ownership. 
Like he's a ter- he, Abraham is a terrible witness. He pawns his wife off to this guy Abimelech so she could be in his harem, right? And then he lies about it. And then he shifts blame, blames Abimelech, blames God. Terrible witness, first go around. And yet it really is amazing that after either five to 20 years, Abimelech comes to Abraham and he says, listen, man, that there's no doubt. Like I've watched, I've, I've, I've seen you. We got off to the wrong foot. But man, there is no doubt that God is with you. Which is why Abimelech wants to sign a treaty. Like, I'm not going to go against you. Like, it's so interesting. We're not told what changed his perspective. But his his perspective did change. And and what I want to say, if you have a past, we all do. And your past is not exactly all that glaring. Maybe even in your own family, there was a season of life B.C., before Christ. And you acted like a fool. Really, you just acted like yourself. An idiot. And, And then you come to Christ, and God does a work in your life, and you get changed and transformed. Something mysterious, magical, tangible happens in your life. Like, like you're no longer the same individual. But in your mind, you're like, I can't be a witness. Like, I can't tell people about Jesus. Like, they remember me as this dude. It's okay. God, God can redeem even a tarnished reputation. Abraham acted like a fool. And yet, after a period of obedience period of walking with God, as Abimelech is watching, he becomes, comes to this realization of like, man, your God is real, and I want to get myself on the right side of this equation. Take heart. Yeah, you tarnish your witness. So what? It's about today. And the work that God wants to do. As, as a matter of fact, I, I would say that it's the fact that you had such a terrible witness and you're no longer that person. That contrast, when people see it, they think a miracle happened. Like there's, that's the only explanation. There's no 12-step program that does that. Like this, this dude is a, a different person. And he's saying what changed him is Jesus. So I either have to argue with him or accept something really did happen. And if that can happen in his life, that might be able to happen in mine. But you know the only way that dynamic happens? Is if you don't allow Satan to beat the condemnation drum and you present yourself and still interact with those people to let them see. Genesis 22, 1 through 19, we looked at last Sunday. You can go to c316.tv. You can watch that Bible study. We're going to move on to verse 22. It came to pass after these things, the things we looked at last Sunday, that it was told to Abraham, saying, Indeed, Milcah has borne children to your brother, Nahor. And they're really terrible at naming children, full disclosure. They named the firstborn Huz. And then they're like, eh, we have another one. Let's call his brother Buzz. 
Huzz and buzz. Like Walker and Texas Ranger. Couldn't have been bright children. Camuel, the father of Amram, and you can read that and figure out how to pronounce it on your own. And Bethuel begot Rebekah. That's kind of our point here, Rebekah. Rebekah is the granddaughter of Abraham's brother. These eight, Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. He also has a concubine. I guess that's cool. They also had kids. The whole point of this passage, it's singular, to introduce us to Rebekah. That's the only point. We're moving on. Verse 1 of 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of Sarah's life. So Sarah died in Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. <laughs> it's interesting. This is kind of a side note. Sarah is the only woman in the Bible that we're given her actual age, which is, which is interesting. I, I think the reason for that is when Sarah got to heaven, she put an end to it. She's like, that's totally inappropriate. We shouldn't be giving the names of these godly women. I'll just kind of take the bullet. It's really the only explanation I have for why it's only Sarah. If you have a better theory, let me know. We're told that Sarah, she lives this life, an exciting life. Her husband's a knucklehead. She's a woman of faith. Twice he tries to pawn her off as his sister but she's a woman of faith. She hears the promises of God and she laughs. So what does God do? He says, name that child laughter. No doubt she laughed. Sarah, she dies in Hebron, which is not an accident. The word Hebron means fellowship. She dies in the land of promise and in the place of fellowship. That's, that's how I'd like to die text tells us here that, that Abraham wasn't with Sarah when she died. Now, now, that doesn't seem to be a mark on Abraham. More as an indication she probably died unexpectedly. They're nomadic. They have a lot of herds and cattle. Doesn't mean Abraham's always home. But Sarah dies unexpectedly. This was not planned. She passes. And upon word of her death, Abraham rushes back, comes to her body, and he mourns. He weeps. This word weep, the only other time we, we've had it mentioned is when Hagar was in the wilderness, sets her son Ishmael, it's conceded to the fact they're gonna die. She cries out, she weeps before the Lord. This is the first time we have mention of a man weeping. And it's okay to weep. It's okay to mourn. Abraham, the man of faith, weeping, tears. It's not a mark against a man. It's a mark of his humanity. Imagine what that scene must have been like. How long they had known each other. How long they had been married. How long they had embarked on this journey together. And how that journey had taken them so far. But we're told in verse 3, So Abraham stood up from before his dead, spoke to the sons of Heth. Now these are local Canaanite leaders. And Abraham says, I'm a foreigner, I'm a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham and said, Hear us, my Lord, you're a, a mighty prince. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place that you may bury your dead. Now, 
very quickly what's going to happen in this chapter. The sons of Heth are going to be like, hey, Abraham, we really admire you. You just pick some land. It's yours. And then Abraham's like, no, 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 no. I can't pick the land. I need to buy it. And they're like, well, well, under those circumstances, here's a problem. Like, like, we're going to get like this ancient Middle Eastern negotiation. Like, they're not actually interested in giving him land. It's just the courtesy. And Abraham's not really interested in paying necessarily full dollar. It's, just, it's a go back and forth. Let's just read it. So Abraham stood up, bowed himself to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. He spoke to them. He says, Is it your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight? Hear me. And meet with Ephron, the son of Zohor. Meet with him for me. Be my mediator. That he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field, very specific location. Let him give it to me at full price. So I know you guys want to give it to me. Give it to me at full price as property for a burial place among you. Now Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth. Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of these mediators, the sons of Heth, and all who entered the gate of the city, which is where transactions occurred. He says, no, 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 no. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field. I give you the, the cave. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. So Abraham bowed himself down before the people of the land. He spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people. He says, if you will give it, please hear me. I will give you money for the field. Take it from me so I can bury my dead there. So Ephron answered and said, my Lord, listen to me. The land's worth... <laughs> 400 shekels of silver. But what is that between you and me? So bury your dead. He's like, it's worth this, but I still want to give it to you. But it is, but it's, it's actually worth this. See what's happening? So Abraham listens to Ephron, and he weighs out silver, the name, the hearing of the sons, 400 shekels, currency. So the field of Ephron, Abraham buys it, which is Machpelah, which is before Merami, the field, has this cave in it. There's trees in the field, which were all within the surrounding borders, were indeed deeded to Abraham as a possession. And the presence of the sons of Heth, before all who went in at the gate of the city, after this Abraham buried his wife in the cave in the field of Machpelah, before Merami, Hebron, the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that's in it, were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as property for a burial place. And once again, like the, the reason this is in the Bible is, is kind of twofold. Not for us to spend copious amounts of time talking about, uh, you know, hey, let me give you like seven, you know, seven points to how you can successfully negotiate with your business partners. Like, whatever. You can find some other pastor to do that. The point of the passage is not to give you tips for negotiation, but to, just to establish two things. One, to actually wrap up the story of Sarah, which is important. You know, to explain she died, to explain where she was buried. It's also to explain that, that Abraham had purchased, he had a deed. He had purchased for a fair price this particular field to not just be a burial place for Sarah, but would come to be a burial place for himself and his descendants. And so once again, Moses letting the children of Israel know as we go into the land, that field, we have it. It's ours. We own it by right, by deed. Chapter 24. Told you we were going to be moving. 
So Abraham was old, well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house. Now, just for a minute. In Genesis 15, verse 2, we're given the name of the most significant senior servant in Abraham's house, a man by the name of Eleazar of Damascus. It's the only servant Moses takes the time to record by name of Abraham's. So it's, it's completely logical and consistent to make the assumption that this particular servant is not just any servant. But it's, it's Eleazar of Damascus, and that's going to be important as we move forward. So instead of just referencing the servant, I've inserted the name Eleazar as we read through the text. So Abraham says to Eleazar, who ruled over all that he had, please put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for, for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But you shall go to my country, to my family, and take a wife for my son Isaac. So Eleazar said to Abraham, perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me back to the land. Must I then take your son to the land from which you came? But Abraham said to him, beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven, who who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family and who spoke to me and swore to me saying to your descendants, I give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, addressing Eleazar's concerns, then you will be released from the oath. Only do not take my son back there. So Eleazar put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master, and swore to him concerning this, ma this matter. Um, for a little fun reading, if you want to explore the nature of this particular oath, the practice of putting your hand under one's thigh, it wasn't to put one's hand under one's thigh, but to put your hand on what's between one's thigh. Th thighs. Do I need to elaborate on what this, what, okay, okay. You can research that kind of on your own. Kind of weird. Yes, very weird. The best explanation I've been given is that what Abraham wants done is, so what's the sign of the covenant between, between God and Abraham? Circumcision. So what is Abraham wanting? This is the continuation of my lineage, my family line, um, yeah, grab hold, shake hands with the sheriff, and, and we're going to enter into an agreement with here. Okay, so just verse 10, we're moving on. You never thought you were going to get that in a Bible study. So Eleazar, he took 10 of his master's camels and departed. For all his master's goods were in his hand. He arose and he went to Mesopotamia. This is western Iraq along the Euphrates rivers. It's about 500 miles. He comes to the city of Nahor, which is founded by Abraham's brother Nahor, who's the grandfather of, we've been introduced to, Rebekah. And he made his camels kneel down outside of the city by a well of water at evening time 
the time when women come out to draw water. Then he said, more accurately, he prayed. Eliezer praying. He says, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day. Show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I stand at a well of water, and the daughters of the men of this city are coming out to draw water. This is all customary. No running water. They have to come and draw it. Let it be that the young woman to whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink, and she replies, well, drink. I'll also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one that you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this, I'll now know that you have shown kindness to my master. So Eliezer's kind of got this whole thing set up. He's like, I have no idea who I'm looking for. I have no idea where the family of Abraham exactly is. I have no idea this woman. I'm kind of lost. And so he prays, Lord, uh, throw me a bone. Like, why don't we do this? I've got the camels. I'm going to see some women come down. I'm going to say, hey, hon, can you uh, give me some water? And, and if she's like, yes, you can drink, how about I also water all of your camels? Then I'll be like, all right, God, you're doing something. That's, that's a special woman. So this is the, the, the deal. Well, it happened, verse 15, <clears throat> that even before Eliezer had, had finished speaking, that behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. Now, the young woman was very beautiful to behold. A virgin, no man had known her. That, that phrase, very beautiful, is, is very, very, very beautiful. She's a knockout. And she went down to the well. She filled her pitcher, and she came up. <laughs> and I love it. Eliezer ran to meet her. And he said, please, let me drink a little water from your pitcher. So Rebecca said, drink. Then she quickly let down her pitcher, gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she says, I'll go and draw water for your camels also. Enough water until they, they, like, they finish drinking. Then she quickly emptied her pitcher into the troughs, ran back to the well to draw water, and drew for, look at this, all his camels. Now that's important because we've actually been told how many camels there were, right? There were 10. Do you realize a camel, they don't drink water often, but when they do, they need to refill, replenish. 10 camels with each camel drinking in upwards of 20 gallons of water. Rebecca's a babe, but she's also a hoss. <laughs> like this is a strong woman because she's doing all this voluntarily. She's throwing this pitcher up on her shoulder. She's running down, getting water, coming back, dumping it, running back down, getting water, coming back, dumping it. How many trips, right? If it's a 20, 20 pound clay pot, I mean, that's like running around with a 60, ba 60 pound bag of quick creep. Like this woman, impressive. So the man, Eleazar, he's watching this. We're told that he's wondering at her. But he remains silent as to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. Verse 22, so it was, when the camels had finished drinking, that Eleazar took a golden nose ring, weighing half a shekel, and two bracelets for her wrist, weighing ten shekels of gold, and he said, whose daughter are you? Tell me, please, is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? 
So Rebekah said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, Milcah's son, whom she bore to Nahor. Moreover, she said to him, we have both straw and feed enough. There's room to lodge. And Eleazar bowed down his head and worshiped the Lord. Now that had to have been awkward for Rebecca, right? Like here she is. She's, she's tired, dog tired. And this guy wants a room and he's like, she's like, yeah, sure. And then he gets down and starts worshiping God. It's like, okay, who are we having over for dinner? He worships the Lord and he says, blessed be the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth towards his master. As for me being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. So Rebecca ran and she tells her mom all of these things. Verse 29, so Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. And Laban ran out to the man by the well. So, so Rebecca has gone, has told her mom, the household, all this stuff. She's got this wicked cool nose ring, solid gold nose ring, and some like cool bracelets. And Laban is seeing, whoa, so there's some gold, right? Laban, we'll, we'll get to him later. He's an interesting character. But Laban's like, all right, where is this guy? Here we go. So Laban, he runs out, finds Eleazar, came to pass, saw the nose ring, the bracelets. He heard the words of Rebecca. So he says, Thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man. He stood by the camels. He said, please come in. Oh, blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? I have prepared the house, place for the camels. So Eleazar came into the house and Laban unloaded the camels, provided straw and feed, water to wash Eleazar's feet and the feet of the men who were with him. We don't know how many men. Food was set before Eleazar to drink. But he said, I will not eat until I've told him about my errand. So Laban said, explain, speak on. So Eleazar says, I am Abraham's servant. And he's going to kind of repeat the story. We'll just read through it. The Lord has blessed my master greatly. He's become great. He's given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female servants, camels, donkeys. Sarah, my master's wife, bore him a son to my master when she was old to give all that he has into his hands. Now my master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house, to my family, take a wife for my son. But I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said, The Lord before whom you walk will send his angel with you that you may prosper in your way, and you shall take a, son, a wife for my son from my family, from my father's house. You will be cleared from this oath. When you arrive among my family, for they, if they will not give her to you, you'll be released from the oath. So this day I came to the well. And I said, Lord God of my master Abraham, if you will prosper in the way in which I go, behold, I stand at the well of water. It shall come to pass when the virgins come to draw. I say, please give me a little water. She says, I'll grab some for your camels also. Let that woman be her. But before I had finished speaking in my heart, there was Rebecca. Coming out with her pitcher on her shoulder, she went down to the well. She drew water. I said, will you let me drink? She made haste, took her pitcher down. She gave me something to drink. She says, I'll give it to your camels also. So I drank. She gave the camels to drink. So I asked her, whose daughter are you? And that's kind of how we got to this point. So she says, the daughter of Bethuel, her son. So she explains who she is. So I put nose rings on her, bracelets, bowed my head, worshiped the Lord. And bless the Lord God of my master Abraham, who led me in the way of truth to take the daughter of my master's brother for his son. 
Now, if you will deal kindly and truly with your master, tell me. And if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right or to the left. So at this point, Eliezer recaps the story. Laban now has heard it. He's processed it. I'm here. I want to take, I want to take the girl back. I want Rebecca to be a wife for Isaac. And if you're not down with this, if you're not cool with this, if you have a reservation about this, just let me know now. I'll be released from my oath. I'll go my way. No problem. Well, verse 50, Laban and Bethuel, this is uh, Rebekah's father, they answered and said, the thing comes from the Lord. We cannot speak to you either bad or good. Here is Rebekah before you. Take her, go, and let her be your master's wife's son as the Lord has spoken. And it came to pass when Eleazar heard their words that he worshiped the Lord. Man loves to worship. Bowing himself to the earth, he brought out jewelry, Silver, jewelry of gold, clothing, gave them to Rebekah. Also gave precious things to her brother Laban, to her mother. And Eleazar and the men who were with him, they ate, they drank, they stayed all night. They arose in the morning. And Eleazar says, send me away to my master. But her brother Laban and her mother said, let the girl stay with us for just a few more days. Like this has all happened within like 12 hours. At least maybe 10 days. After that, she can go. But Eleazar said to them, do not hinder me. Since the Lord has prospered my way, send me away that I may go to my master. And so they said, we will call the young woman. We'll ask her personally. Then they called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? And she says, I will go. And they sent Rebekah and her sister and her nurse, Abraham's servant and his man. They sent them away. They blessed Rebekah. They said to her, our sister, may you become the mother of, 10, 000, of thousands of ten thousands. That's a lot. And may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. So may you rise to, to stature. So Rebekah and her maids arose, and they rode on the camels, and they followed the man. So Eleazar took Rebekah, and they departed. They're going back now from Mesopotamia, back to the land of promise. This is 500 miles. It would take about two months. So they departed. This is all we're told. So two months of silence. As they're traveling, Rebekah with Eleazar, now Isaac, came from the way of Ber le Rahoy, for he dwelt in the south. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening. That's a fascinating word, meditate. It doesn't mean pray. It, it means to, to commune or to muse. It's the only time in the Bible that word's used. Interesting. So he goes in the field to spend time with God. This was a habit. This is something he did. And while he's doing this, we're told he lifts his eyes and he looks, and there, there's the camels coming. Then Rebekah lifted her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel. For she had said to the servant, who is this man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, it is my master. So she took a veil and covered herself. Now, because none of you laughed, none of you actually understood what was just told us by this text. Notice again, she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel for, she had said, this question, who is that? Oh, that's my master. That all explains why she dismounted. The word dismounted doesn't mean that she gracefully get off her camel. The whole idea here is that they're getting close. Isaac's coming, running up ahead. Rebecca's like, who's that? And they're like, yo, that's your hubby. Like, that's Isaac. So she immediately starts to, like, put on, like, 
her formal coverings. She, she dolls herself up. And in the process of doing that, falls off the camel. That's literally what dismount means. She's so busy trying to get the veil on that boom. So you're Isaac, you're walking up, and you're like, that's my woman. And then she falls off a camel, right? It's crazy. I love it. But Eleazar, you can imagine Isaac's like, don't tell me that that's, that that's who you're bringing back, Miss Klutz. But Eleazar tells Isaac, right? No, 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 no. Of all the things that happened, and then we're told Isaac brought Rebekah into his mother Sarah's tent. He took her. She became his wife. He loved her. And so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Now, as we wrap up this section with just the few minutes we have left, I want to begin by first looking at this, this story from a, uh, a typological nature or perspective. Like a bigger, a bigger, like what, what, is, what is this story a picture of? Before we get to the practical. So we're going to do two things. We're going to look at it from kind of a larger sense, then we're going to get into some nitty-gritty with some application. It's important that you keep in mind the context by which this story begins. The last time we have seen Isaac was when his father had taken him up to Mount Moriah to offer him as a sacrifice. Now, God stayed Abraham's hand, provided a ram in Isaac's place, and we noted how that entire story was a picture of what? Of God the Father sending his only son, Jesus, to be the sacrifice for the sins of the world. Ironically, not accidentally, on the exact same mountain, Mount Moriah. This picture, this radical picture that God is wanting to communicate to Abraham of what it would take for him to offer his son to demonstrate how deeply he loved you and I. Last time we see Isaac, though, because what, what do we read? In chapter 22, Abraham, we're told, the whole story ends with Abraham returning back to these two servant guys without Isaac, just alone. Like, in a sense, Isaac completely disappears from the narrative after being offered on Mount Moriah, to not be physically seen again until when? The very end of Genesis 24, when he comes out to do what? To receive his bride unto himself. Also consider that while Isaac has been off the scene, what's been happening? Something stirred within the heart of his father, Father Abraham, intent on doing what? Bringing a bride to his son right? Now, in order to do that, does Father Abraham go to fulfill the task himself? No, instead he sends a trusted servant by the name of Eleazar to go and bring a bride for the son. Eleazar. You want to take a guess at what the, the word Eleazar means? It means God is help, or literally the helper. Interesting. Little tease. The Holy Spirit is called what? The helper? How interesting that it was Eleazar who not only went to call out a bride for Isaac, but was the one entrusted by the father to care for that bride until she could be presented to the groom. In the process, Eleazar, not the father and not the son, it was Eleazar, the helper, who met, 
chose, called, and cared for the bride as they both did what? Embark on a long journey that would end with her being presented to the son. The picture, right? After Jesus was sacrificed on Mount Moriah, what happened? He physically leaves the scene while the father sends into the world a helper, the Holy Spirit, charged with what task? To call out a bride for the son. Paul builds on this this language in Ephesians 5, calling the church literally the bride of Christ. And while we, as his chosen bride, continue upon this long journey that will ultimately end how? With Jesus coming out of heaven to receive us unto himself presently. It is the job of the Holy Spirit to care for us, to care for the bride in the meantime. (laughs) The Holy Spirit It's his job in the world to call out a bride, to care for that bride by lavishing what? Gifts. Hence, Paul talks about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And in the end, to bring us safely to Jesus. And yet, it should also be pointed out as illustrated by Rebecca. While the Father sent the Spirit, the Son eagerly waits for the arrival of his bride. The Spirit tasked with making the appeal as Rebecca you're left to make a choice, right? Like Rebecca wasn't innocent in the, in, in, in the matter. Like she had a, a choice. She had a say. Yes, Laban's like, yeah, you can take my sister. But ultimately it was like, Rebecca, do you want to go? And what does she say? She says, I will go. Will you go? The Holy Spirit is calling you. You see, Rebecca had been called by Eleazar with the appeal that there was awaiting for her a groom that would provide an entirely new life, that she would be an heir, a new legacy. And yet the only way that she would enjoy this calling and all of the wonderful things that would come from it is if she would be willing to say, I will. That's all she had to say. This young woman demonstrates amazing faith that she was willing to begin a journey to a groom she had never seen. The Spirit invites you to do the same. Now, I'm running out of time. Pretty cool picture, right? How it all ties in. The gospel in Genesis. The gospel of grace. Rebecca's chosen. There's a practical side to this story. And, And I don't have much time. But there's just two things. First, Eleazar is wanting to be in the center of God's will, right? He's wanting to be led by the Lord. He's wanting to follow God. He's wanting to be where God wants him to be. But how does he do this? Now, Eleazar does something terrible. He he creates a, a formula for God to lead him through. Circumstantially, right? providential circumstances. Well, God, if you do this, 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 and this, now I know you're in it. The problem with that, David Guzik says, generally speaking, circumstances alone can be a dangerous way to discern God's will. And here's why. We have a way of ignoring circumstances that speak against our desired outcome, and we attribute those circumstances as instead being from the devil. Instead of, quote, throwing a fleece, look at the two things Eliezer did do. Two things. One, he prayed. Right? 
He expressed his heart to God. I just want to be where you want me to be. If you're not in this, then let me know. If you are, make it clear. It's an honest prayer. But also notice what Eliezer do. He does more than just pray. He acts. Look at verse 27 again. He says, as for me, being on my way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brother. Eliezer prays, but he's more than willing to be moving, to be active. He sees Rebecca. He doesn't wait for Rebecca to come up to him, does he? Boom, he gets down, he runs to her. He makes an appeal. He asks to go to her house. Like he's, he is in the process. Don't mistake. So, so many Christians are like, I'm going to pray that God's will be done. And I'm just going to, you know, if it's God's will, it's just going to happen. And I'm just going to sit back and like, okay. Like you just make it happen, God. I got. Why don't you just try that with food? Next time you're on the couch, you pray and be like, God, it's, it's good for me to eat. I feel like that's part of your will for my life, that I eat. But you know what? If that's really your will for my life, I need you to open the refrigerator and float out some nachos. Because I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. There's a balance, folks. Praying but acting. Keep this in mind. It's a whole lot harder to steer a parked car than one on the move. Aside from all of this, there is a practical lesson as it pertains to finding a spouse. This is a quick word for all those who are single. Finding a spouse, here's the words of wisdom. Don't. Don't. Don't go find one. It's going to end terribly. Like It's true. Our culture is much different than this culture in a lot of ways. But there is a point, right, that both Isaac and Rebecca. They're not searching for a mate. They're not actively on the prowl. Like instead, what are they doing? They're just focusing on serving the Lord, being content with the life God had given, and waiting for God to do something. Now, they were willing to act, right? Rebecca was willing to say, I'll go. Isaac was willing to run out from the field. When the opportunity presented itself, they were willing to act upon it, but they weren't actively searching for it. The reason it was successful, the reason it lasted was one thing. The Holy Spirit was behind it and was in it. Because Eleazar is all over this. If you want a spouse, don't look for it. Trust that the Holy Spirit will bring that person along your path, but then don't be a moron and drag your feet when that woman's clearly there. Like, fellas, three criteria you need for a woman. Very simple. One, is she a godly woman? Two, are you attracted to her? Three, does she like you? <laughs> like, if, if you can seriously find all three of those, she's godly, she's good looking, and she's kind of into me. Marry her. Like, lock that down. Like, don't let that get away. Pray, but then act. But act upon the Spirit's leading. And that's the key. Well, Lord, thank you for your word.